Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast with your host, Scott McMahon. Hi, and welcome to Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent. And what does that exactly mean, having filmmaking freedom for the independent? Isn't being independent enough freedom because you're not dependent? Uh, Not always, because a lot of us still follow the paradigm of trying to finish our film independently, but needing to fit into the studio system. So we're somewhat dependent on still an existing structure. So to be truly independent and have that freedom of being able to make your movie when you want to and to be able to sell it and distribute it around the world and to make a sustainable living doing so, that is the ultimate goal, the ultimate freedom. And today's sponsor may just help you get there. It's a new book, How to Sell and Make Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. It's available in paperback, a Kindle ebook, as well as an iBook, and an audiobook. In fact, you can get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial with audible.com. Again, that's at survivetheimplosion.com. Today's guest is filmmaker Christopher Everett. He's a documentary filmmaker as well as a graphic designer and someone who's worked in marketing and on, you know, as any of us on the side has made this documentary called Wilmington on Fire. It's about the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. Sometimes it's called the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898. Essentially, I'll let, you know, Christopher go into what that was and why he wanted to make a documentary film about this um, very historic event that had so many ramifications for us as a nation here in the United States. However, the name of the podcast episode is How to Make Money with Your Live Screenings. And I wanted to have Christopher on because even though Christopher has finished his film, Wilmington on Fire, he has not yet released it uh, on Video On Demand or any of the um, available platforms out there for a worldwide audience to see. He's taking his time and doing one live screening at a time to build up his audience, to build up his following before he does a major launch um, of his film in wider networks. But in the meantime, we get to pick his brain because he has a lot of interesting marketing and promotional techniques that all of us can learn no matter what film we're working on to help essentially make a profit whenever you do your live screenings. And this is outside of film festivals. Without further ado, here's my guest, documentary filmmaker Christopher Everett, on the Film Trooper podcast. Well, Wilmington on Fire is pretty much a feature-length documentary on the 1898 Wilmington Massacre that happened in Wilmington, North Carolina on November 10th, 1898. And it's considered one of the only actual coup d'etats that has ever happened in in America. Um, We've had several coup d'etats in America before, but this is like the only one that was actually successful. And a coup d'etat is an a violent overthrow of an existing government. And a lot of people here at coup d'etats, they think of like third world countries and other places. But a lot of people don't know something like that actually happened here. And it happened in Wilmington, you know, in 1898. And the film kind of covers that whole spectrum of how they did it, why they did it, and uh, the families and the communities that was impa- that were impacted um, because of this racial massacre of African-American people in Wilmington, North Carolina. But this event also helped set up the whole Jim Crow segregation era throughout North Carolina as well. And so it's, it's a lot of historical significance in regards to, you know, race relations, not only in North Carolina, but throughout the country. Yeah. So when you say massacre, like, did they get, did you, was there a, a number of um, African-Americans that were slaughtered? 
Well, the thing is, they didn't really keep an accurate account. Yeah. Um, so you got to kind of go by certain things that they put in the newspapers back then. But when you when we did the research, a lot of the people that owned the major newspapers were actually a part of this massacre of causing it. So they actually kind of minimized it back then. Mm-hmm. They would say, well, only three or four people were killed, slaughtered and but everything is good now. Peace is restored. But when you hear like certain stories from certain actual direct descendants, like we have some of the, the grandchildren and great grandchildren of some of the actual victims of the massacre. And they they just, you know, recall certain stories that their grandparents and stuff passed down, you know, to them from generations saying that it was thousands or hundreds. But wow. a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of people actually left the city as well over like a two or three year period, just totally just left, you know, Wilmington. And because back then, Wilmington was a slightly majority um, African-American populated city. But in like a five year period, the black population was pretty much cut in half. You know, so it was a lot of people that were killed, but also it was a lot of people that just left and just never returned. That's now. So the when you say the coup, it's like um, there was a political um, there was a political motive behind uh, yes. what what they wanted to do. Essentially, yes. I'm assuming they just didn't want the African American uh, people there in that town. Yeah. So. Um, by creating, by involving into a massacre, it's, yeah. you know, scaring and scaring them off and, and having those surviving members or families just get out. So, yes. um, and it's interesting about the history. Like you said, it's like, you know, we are in our school system, you know, we've yeah. grown up in a very, you know, sort of whitewashed or white, um, like history, you know, yeah. in terms, even like, it's interesting that like, the people in um, Great Britain uh, yeah. view the independence of America as like the uh, colonial rebellion. Like it's so it's yeah. like it's it depends where you grow up. It's like these weird exactly. sort of perspectives. So yeah. here you are. This local event happens, and uh, you know obviously the papers are run by um, you know white supporters of this event, so they can they can dictate what history could you know needs to be. So exactly. it, it's. I, so when you're saying like a hundreds of thousands, it could be like, say, we don't know, but it could be a thousands or like yeah. a, a thousand, um, you know, African-Americans, which is mind boggling because just recently the, the tragedy in Orlando, they were claiming that was like the most, you know, the, maybe the, the biggest massacre in terms of a, a, of a gun spree. But yeah. and then someone else had posted that it wasn't necessarily the most um, horrific thing in American history. Uh, I think somebody brought up a wounded knee. Uh, yeah. of of the Native Americans. I don't remember how many people were massacred there. Uh, I don't know. Do you do you know? Uh no, not not offhand. But um there's been there's been several of these type of events like the Wilmington Massacre. Um no, I think John Singleton, he did a movie a few years ago called Rosewood. Oh yeah. And that was about the Rosewood Massacre. And um also there's been the the Tulsa massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma back in I think nineteen twenty one. Um, that was a major one back then. Um, so there's been several of these type of events that's, that have that have happened in America over the years. But the Wilmington one is kind of significant because it was an actual overthrow of a government along with the massacre. Oh, so what government was in place that was protecting the? Well, or it, I, I, like I'm I'm trying help me yeah. kind of see where the right. positioning is. Okay. Well, back then you had a thing called fusion politics. 
and fusion politics was pretty much you had a lot of um, white farmers and also um, newly freed slaves kind of merging together and forming this thing called fusion. And they pretty much formed together and merged together in like a, I guess, some type of political alliance to put their people in office and try to make the laws more fair and balanced for everyone. And so they did that in North Carolina and especially in Wilmington. And back then, Wilmington was North Carolina's major, major city. It wasn't Charlotte. It wasn't Raleigh. Wilmington was the place to be for everyone. And the political arena there was was kind of balanced for everyone. And you have to go. You pretty much have to go back to the Civil War to figure out a lot of this stuff. Because when you look at the people who actually pulled off the massacre, the people who were planning and plotting the massacre, they all were confederate soldiers and and majors and colonels for the confederacy during the civil war and there was always speculation that when they lost the civil war they always kind of wanted to kind of get some type of revenge Mm -hmm. you know on america and they were they always said that this was it this was the plan right here to actually do an overthrow of the government and what better place to do it than than wilmington so because Wilmington was a, it's an isolated place. It's a very weird um, city. It's kind of like this. It's like a peninsula in a way. So if you kind of control, you know, the telegraph lines, the newspapers and all that, you can really isolate it and do something like this and kind of control the information of what's actually going on. See, all these things kind of came into play, which we break all this stuff down in the film yeah. as well. But they really wanted to get rid of this fusion government and make it, uh, I guess, a uh, so-called white supremacist government so that's what they wanted to usher in was white supremacy to take over the government of wilmington but not only wilmington but just the whole state of north carolina as well so it just wasn't something that was restricted to wilmington they pretty much rigged the whole political system across the state yeah because we're talking about 1898 and i'm assuming this is like you know 30 to 25 to 30 years removed from the end of the civil war which we know you know following history the reconstruction period you know, it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Are you good? <laughs> There's a phone call coming in. I don't know if you hear that. No, I didn't hear anything. Oh, so only I hear that. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm going to cut this part. <laughs> All right. It's cool. I'll have to... Let me close that out real quick. Because I'm uh, trying to talk to you and I hear this loud... Somebody got to somebody got to figure out how to like disconnect my phone from my computer. <laughs> See, even though my phone is like quiet, all of a sudden that thing comes on. Anyhow, um, as we were saying, the as we were saying the uh, Reconstruction period, you know, yeah. obviously just because something comes into law and like things change, it doesn't necessarily automatically people no. just go okay, you know, and <laughs> and it's funny you were talking about the South. Um, you know, as a kid growing up on like Bugs Bunny cartoons and stuff like that, I just remember like um, Foghorn, Foghorn Leghorn, the rooster, uh, chicken, always talking about, you know, the South will rise, or Yosemite Sam, like the South will rise again. That's that's like cartoon version of what I thought the South was, was. And this is very prevalent because this is like ca- cartoons in the 1940s. So the surviving members of the Civil War uh, yeah. of of the, the Confederate States uh, that were essentially still talking about that and breed and that exactly. and that I can only imagine that still breeds um, fuel for what we're seeing today um, yeah. and, and another note it's interesting about the the differences of like maybe the Civil War was one way you know of trying to preserve a culture and lifestyle 
where then they lost the war and then they have to adapt to some other methods. Uh, Someone mentioned that, you know, the the last assassination uh, of uh, President Kennedy was like, will be the last type of assassination like that because um, politics have evolved so much. Now it's a character assassination. So it's yes. like the same, the same concept, but now it's like we don't have to physically murder, you know, a president yeah. or a statesman or anything like that. We there are different methods we can use yeah. now. Um, so it's interesting to hear, you know, twenty five years removed from the Civil War, this yeah. was a organized plot to say we need to take over, you know, yes. this territory, and then having, um, you know, a, a bigger plan behind it. What got you? interested in history um you're i've always i guess you know i've always been you know fascinated by it um i've always been fascinated by history that's not really in the mainstream um you know i know about martin luther king malcolm x and other things like that but i always wanted to study and learn more about things that that i didn't learn in school and i think i was living in atlanta georgia at the time when i came up with the idea and i think about 2010 where i think I ran across something on the internet and they were just talking about the different racial massacres that have happened in America, I guess, since the end of, since the end of slavery, all the way up to, I think the 1970s or something. And I saw Wilmington, North Carolina, like, hold on, man, I'm from North Carolina. I've never learned about this history at all. And I just started researching more about it. And I was just fascinated by the whole thing and how detailed it was and how organized it was. And a lot of people didn't really know about it. But I saw that a few people have written books on it, but I saw that no one actually did a movie on it. So I looked at it as a challenge. Um, I decided right then and there that I wanted to make some type of documentary. I knew I couldn't do like an actual real movie. I just didn't have the funds for that. Yeah, yeah. But I could do try to do a, at least a solid documentary about the history of it. Yeah, it's interesting. The what part of what area of uh, North Carolina did you grow up in? Um, I'm in a small town, a small town called Laurenburg, Laurenburg, North Carolina. Uh, you probably don't know. No one probably knows where it is. I don't know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's about it's about it's about an hour and a half from Wilmington, actually. It's like in a weird um, spot in North Carolina. It's an hour and a half from Wilmington, an hour and a half from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, so it's a real, real small country town. There's nothing hardly here. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now, um now Everett, the last name Everett, you know, being yeah. I'm assuming you're also African American descent, like yeah. your family yeah. and so on. So does the name Everett, you know, where does that uh, come from? Uh, I have no idea. Oh, okay. I was just kidding. <laughs> one of my favorite, my favorite, my folk- grandfather. Okay, my grandfather. yeah. <laughs> What's interesting because I remember um, my one of my favorite um, football players is Ladanian Tomlinson. Yeah, you know, I grew up a, a Charger fan, so he, he was born in Texas, or and so yeah. they had this whole piece with him going back to you know uh, the, his hometown in, in Texas, and he's looking at like his roots, and um, and a historian was there with them, and you know finding out that his you know the Thomason was the slave owner yeah. of his, so he got yeah. this con, he was able to see a little bit more about his family history and stuff like that. Yeah. And I was curious about that because it's, you know, you're growing up in North Carolina, again, from an outside perspective, you know, I grew up in California, I'm up yeah. here in Portland, you know, Oregon, so on like that. And even though Portland, uh, like the city proper um, is, um, I don't know, they're, they're like, like Portland, I guess, they, they, they try to strive themselves to be weird. They have the whole like, you know, <laughs> keep weird. But Oregon in itself, historically, has been very, um, you know, 
white supremacists and and so yeah. like that you know and there's still like the outskirts of the the, the country of Oregon um, country the the countryside of Oregon um that ha you know has a very sordid history i think it was like it was not until like the 1970s where they finally realized that they they had a state law or a city law yeah. that prevented interracial marriages or something like that someone you know? i think someone has a documentary um out on that i think um I forgot the name of it, but someone has a documentary that talks about just the racial dividing in, I guess, Oregon. Mm -hmm. I forgot the name of it, though. When I find it, I'll email it to you. But it's someone recently just came out with one, a documentary. It's, it looks pretty cool, the trailer. Looked real good. Yeah, well, so does yours, Wilmington on Fire. I mean, the the, the 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 clips that I've seen of your film, I have not seen the whole film. I've only seen the trailer, some of the clips. I've seen uh, the artwork. And I'm assuming, yeah. you had to tell me, is that your artwork? Um, not mine, per se. <laughs> it's I own, the, I own the art, but um, a guy named um, Wally McNair. He's out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Like I've him and the guy, this guy named Marcus Kaiser, they're both out of Charlotte and they're like talented artists and graphic designers. And I've been working with them for years on different projects. So whenever I do something, I always try to incorporate um, art and music somehow. Like I think I sent you the, the little promo soundtrack mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gave out for free. So I always try to do things like that is just a marketing tool. And I wanted to incorporate like the illustrations in the film because some of the stuff that we talk about in the film you can't really find archival footage of it <laughs> yeah i bet you know so it's like we'll have like some good information but it's nothing there to show or nothing so i had to find certain parts where we i said okay let's just put some illustrations right here but i want to kind of modernize it as well you know i wanted the film to kind of have that modern feel to it so a mixture of archival photos and stuff like that plus illustration powerful illustrations as well but the illustrations are also a part of a bigger picture. Um, I'm putting together like an art book, like a mm -hmm. Wilmington on Fire art book. And it's going to have all those illustrations plus a whole bunch of other illustrations that kind of highlight the whole history of the 1898 massacre. So yeah. that's going to be kind of part of when we release the DVD. Um, I know you you talk about this a lot, you know, the bundle packages. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's going to be part of the, the bundle set, you know, the DVD, the art book. Um, the original score soundtrack and a few other things that we'll offer as a bundle set. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, when you sent me all the links, it was, first of all, everything was so organized. Like, like you know, for, this is me talking to the audience out there. You have got to, I can't wait till you guys see this artwork because it's, it's bonkers. It's so good. I mean, it's, it, all of it is just top notch. It reminds me of, I'm a fan of like sort of these like um, jazz artwork. Um, yeah. And you know, like sometimes when I go to Disneyland, they have like the New Orleans Jazz Kitchen, or the like. <laughs> I was a f big fan of like um, you know the, the jazz and the swing swing music yeah. and stuff like that. But all this artwork reminds me of that. Yeah. But it's not. It's it's so not only is it so well done, but it's capturing like an emotional, I think, yeah. moment pivotal. Like this, it's very striking. It's yeah. all of it's very striking, and and not only that, but like uh, looking at your bio, you, you do a lot of work with uh, marketing and graphic design. The whole package is reading that way. I mean, the 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 poster design, um, and every little nooks and crannies of how you put together your press kit and all that kind of stuff is just top notch. Uh, photos from your events, the uh, you've had like four now uh, live screening. Yeah, I've had a few. Yeah, I've had uh. Well, the first one we premiered in November of this past year, 
at the uh, Kukulors Film Festival. And Kukulors is a real big festival in North Carolina. It's been around 21 years. And it's in Wilmington as well. So I knew I wanted to, when once I had the film ready to roll, I wanted to premiere it there. Because they do Kukulors during the whole week of the anniversary of the 1898 massacre. So I knew right then that I'll get all the free press I want, and which I did. <laughs> um, I got like, I was like in front page of all the newspapers there, magazines, everything. So when we did this, I was kind of skeptical. I was like, okay, if I can get about 30 or 50 people to come out, I'm good. But we actually broke the film festival's record, man. We uh, broke their record for most attended screening ever. We had 600 people at the screening. Was Plus that, 300. <laughs> I was just saying, was that the picture? Because uh, there was a photo of like, like, it was great. Like everybody was filled in the theater, but you had the balconies also filled up. That was the third screening. A oh, third screening. Third. Okay, so so, <laughs> I, so I didn't interrupt you. So you're saying the first one you broke the record, like yeah. 600 plus people. We we, we had 600 people at um this place called Thalian Hall, and the the place holds 600 people. It's downtown, in downtown Wilmington. We had 600 people there, plus we had 300 people outside that couldn't get in. And once I saw that, I was like, okay, I think I have something here, <laughs> you know. So after that, man, I rented Thalian, the same place. I rented it again. And I got about 500 people for the second time I did it, but I did it on my own this time. And then that picture that you're talking about, I did, that was the third screening I had in Wilmington. And that was in January at a Keenan Auditorium. And that place holds about a thousand people. So we got about 700 in that. And after that, I just started screening in other places around North Carolina and a few other places and just been rolling. I said I have about about eight, eight screenings so far, eight screenings. It's amazing. So, you know, like I said, the, your packaging is very simple, but it's very clean, and it's it it everything immediately communicates like this this yeah. horrific event that's important. Yeah. Um, but I was curious. I want to know how you knew to go to your local film festival, and was yeah. it just simply doing a blind submission, or did you take time to introduce yourself to the program director? Because most yeah. experts say that if you want to really nurture your opportunity. It's at least yeah. make an introduction to yourself to the program directors so they know who you are as opposed, you know, just to do a blind submission and sit back and wait. So yeah. how, how was that process as well as once you knew um, that you could, you know, piggyback off the, the anniversary of this uh, event, yeah. Um, yeah. was there any other additional marketing stuff you did? Because, you know… The nice story is it's like, yeah, I submitted to the film festival, I got in, and, and all of a sudden, you know, boom, we had all these people show up. There's usually nah, see, it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot. It's a lot more to it than that. Okay, see, like, yeah. What I pretty much did was I built up a nice following over like the past three or four years, even before the film was even done, and I pretty much looked at like I know I've like I said I'm a fan of your podcast, so I would listen to people like you and others on YouTube. And also, I looked at what uh, what I saw a lot of rappers do, meaning that a lot of hip hop artists they'll get on a radio show, right? And they might, you know, premiere like a song or single, and then they'll say, "Yeah, you know, my album is coming out in October of yeah. this year." Yeah. And when October comes, the album still isn't out, but they're always constantly promoting and also always getting on some type of radio show or whatever. So I said, "Okay, I'm gonna try to do the same thing with my film. I would get on anyone's podcast, anyone's blog, talk radio." anyone whatever you know if you wanted to talk to me about my film and where where i can promote it i would get on it 
And I've been doing it like constantly for like four years, even before the film was done. You know, while I was filming it, I was constantly getting on, you know, people's, you know, media outlet, whether it was blog talk or whatever, podcasts or whatever. And doing that, it kind of made me get a, like a little following. And also the, some of the people that I actually have in the film and I actually got a few people attached to be like producers. Like this one guy, his name's Tariq Nasheed. He's an associate producer, but he has a, a, a big following and his documentary is called Hidden Colors. And it's one of the best documentaries on black history ever. And so I got him on board just uh, just a name. Hmm. You know, he liked what I was doing and he, he liked the trailer. He um, then he started wearing the shirt, the Wilmington on Fire shirt on his Ustream channel, which he has a huge following. So that kind of got me a lot of followers as well. So I did just those type of things. And when I was ready to finally premiere this thing, I was already kind of connected with the Kukulors Film Festival because I was in their um, I was in their first ever work in progress um, program, documentary program. I say back in November of 2013. And with that, I kind of just showed like a couple of clips from the documentary of Real Rough. And I actually um, sold that one out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just showing like some rough, just some rough interview footage. And it was like one of their small little theaters. It was like, I think the place hold about 80 people. And I actually packed that out and sold that out, just showing a few small, r rough, uncut, um, small clips from the film. So I was like, okay, I kind of got a nice base here going. So two years later, I was ready to premiere. I hit up the guy who runs the festival because I was actually already in their program, their work in progress documentary program. Oh, perfect. So that's how I, yeah, so that's how I actually got in. But I had to fight for getting the largest venue because I knew, because so, a friend of mine, he told me, he said, man, you need to get the biggest venue possible because I'm a very modest person. I just thought maybe 50 or 100 people might show up. I didn't think 600, but he said, man, you're going to have to get the biggest one because you have a nice following. I was like, man, uh, I pretty much convinced Kukulores to give me the biggest one, which was Stalian Hall, because Stalian Hall is very significant to the 1898 massacre because the people who did the massacre, that's where they actually met at to organize and build the, the whole the white mob and everything to actually pull off the massacre. So I was like, so I convinced them and said, hey, this is it's significant. So we need to do it then. This is the week of the anniversary of the massacre. It's, it's a win-win. So they 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 loved it and it worked out. <laughs> I think I think they're I think they're actually mad that they actually didn't double book the place because, like I said, we had six hundred in there and you had three hundred, you know, outside that couldn't get in. Wow. You know? we thought it sold out like three days before the actual screening. It sold out like three days before the actual screening. That must be kind of. I don't know, creepy being in the same, you know, like to be in the hall that organized it. I don't know if there's any residual ghosts or something that felt in there, but yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, well, another thing, man, I almost didn't even get into my own screening because, <laughs> because this is what happened, right? I had to, cause you know, I had to, I got a lot of comp tickets for some of the cast and crew and people that could, that could actually come to the screening. So I had to wait outside and, you know, give them their ticket to get in. And while I was doing that, everyone's getting their ticket to go in, you know, the place is packed. And so I tried to get in there and the lady says I couldn't come in. <laughs> I'm like, what? Hold on. I'm the director. And she was like, well, you know, we're, we're already passed. We're over fire code already. So I'm like, come on. So she told me to go up. They actually have a room at the top of the theater, which they're not even supposed to open. But they still put in like 50 people up there. So I had to sit up there with about 40 other people. And they're not even supposed to open the place, man. But they happened to open that part of the theater that night. <laughs> you know, amazing. So. 
What's the yeah. reaction? I mean, you have like 600 something people there. It's it's local history. It's significant. So what? Yeah. Um, there it is. You know yeah. your 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 work, and so it's yeah. funny because it's everything's set up to to be successful in that respect. You know you have yeah. a very important topic that has a cultural re- re- relevance, a local relevance. So yeah. now you're like, man, this thing has got to deliver. Like you, you the, yeah. the pressure's on you. Like this thing has to. Yeah, be I was ex- ex- <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but once you know, once the film was done, because I don't know. Other artists might be like this, but I can never sit there and watch my film in front of everybody. I always got to wait or just, you know, be on the outside to wait till it's over. I just can't watch it in front of people. I just don't know why. But afterwards, you know, I was like, okay, are people going to walk out? So I kind of went outside a little bit just to see. And no one walked out, man. And then when it was over, the whole room standing ovation, clapping. I was like, oh, man, thank you. Man, you, <laughs> you, could, know. you could have two ways to go. It could be completely silent. Which would yeah. be another great reaction, or you know, <laughs> yeah. but I got a standing ovation, man. Then we did the Q and A afterwards, me and some of the cast and crew members, and it was cool, you know. But Kukulors, they bring a lot of big films there. Like we actually beat out a film with, uh, you remember the show One Tree Hill? Yeah. Used to come on. Yeah. Well, you know they sh- they used to shoot that in Wilmington. Wilmington used to be real big in the film industry right, for a long right. time. Screen gyms, studios is there. So, um, you know, the the cast of One Tree Hill still has a big following in Wilmington today. And this one guy, I forgot his name, but he was one of the stars of One Tree Hill. Him and Danny Glover made a film together. And it actually showed the next day after mine. And mine still beat out theirs by like two or three hundred people, you know. <laughs> so that was cool, you know, actually, you know, that someone like myself from a small town you know, could do something like that, you know, that was really, really amazing. And then seeing these other filmmakers, you know, seeing me and, you know, then walking down the street and afterwards and, you know, just congratulate me, you know, saying how much they enjoyed the film and, you know, give me the business cards, you know, let's talk and all that. It was great. Amazing. So let me, you know, you were mentioning that you were, had the idea and then you, you know, hustled and you promoted it when yeah. you could for yeah. over two, three years to build the following. What sort of yeah. one thing I know that a lot of filmmakers will ask or want to know, like, what do you promote when you don't have anything? I mean, the, the, I guess the great thing about the documentary side of thing, the story yeah. has already been written. It's just your job mm-hmm. to uncover the truth as more mm-hmm. of an investigator to some extent, and yeah. then put your your artistic spin around it, as opposed yeah. to like a narrative film where you yeah. know you're writing it from scratch. But what yeah. sort of marketing materials did you find useful or the approach you have useful uh, to start promoting before the film yeah. was even finished? Well, I know the first thing I did when I first started shooting, um, I shot like a teaser trailer and I start shooting just some scenes from the film. And I'm like, OK, I'm going to use the teaser trailer to put out there. And like I said, I, I usually try to follow the model that I see a lot of rappers use. Like they might not even have an album out ready, ready to go out yet, but they'll release a single. So I said, okay, I'll release a teaser trailer and use that to promote. And then after that, for a while, I'll release a clip. <laughs> you know, I'll release like a little clip, a small snippet of something very powerful um, from the film. And I'll usually, I had like over like a couple of years, I would have like a clip, like a, a minute clip for to release every month for like two years. 
You know, and a lot of that stuff I didn't even use in the final cut. It was the stuff that was good stuff, but I just couldn't place it well. So I was like, you know what? Instead of just throwing it away and not using it, it's like I said, it goes back to what I saw a lot of hip hop artists do. They would use like un- like songs they wouldn't put on the album. They were good songs, but they just didn't fit the album. But they would just put it out for free as like a mixtape version, you know, just to use it as promo material. Instead of just wasting it, they would put it out as a mixtape to keep their you know name and, and music out there. So I kind of looked at it the same way with a lot of the unreleased footage that I knew I wasn't going to use, but I can put it out there. And one of those clips, I think it was Dr. Umar Johnson, when he's talking about propaganda. And I just put out like a rough clip of that. And man, that thing got like about 4 million views in like a year wow. on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And and everyone in a lot of media outlets started hitting me up, say, hey, uh, when's your film coming out? Because, you know, they they ran into the, the clip somehow. And I didn't think it was going to do that. I just put it out. thought it was a cool clip. And it was very rough. It didn't have anything, um, you know, spectacular. The color grading was off. The sound was off and everything. I just put like the little snippet out and everyone gravitated towards it. I think because of a lot of the stuff that was going on with police brutality, the whole Trayvon Martin issue that happened in Florida and all that. And I think it really reflected a lot of that, not only talking about the 1898 history, but things that are going on today as well. And people just gravitated towards it. So I was mad that I couldn't really monetize it better. I just threw it out. I didn't think it was going to do that, you know, but it actually kind of still built up my following and everything. So those are the type of things I would do. Um, just to release different clips and footage. Um, the guy who did my score, he was always, you know, dibbling and dabbling of trying to come up with a composition for the whole thing. So we would put out little snippets of that, of, of the, the score that we're working on. Work in progress. Um, Work in progress. Yeah. 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 So it's pretty much, you know, giving the audience a look into the whole progress of making this film. You know, that's pretty much what it was. And we would share like some of the artwork, um, the motion graphics snippets of like the opening title sequence stuff. So we would share all those things. And plus I had the the promo soundtrack already pretty much done anyway. It was the promo soundtrack was done like a year after I started filming, but I just couldn't release it because, you know, the film wasn't done. Right. So we would send out little songs here and there out there, float them around. So it was just a combination of using things that I already had to just put out there. Let me ask you, it's um, sometimes just making something is putting out there, um, but did you do any sort of marketing or promotional push for those materials? Because uh, you were mentioning the propaganda clip. Um, yeah. I could see like creating stuff like that and then doing, you know, pushing it to some bloggers or some news yeah, outlets. Yeah. Oh, so you yeah, did I so, pretty much did. Okay. Yeah. I would like push like, like say like the propaganda clip, for example. And when like a certain say if something happened like all right the orlando shooting for example like when that happened like something like that it would happen i, I immediately would send the propaganda the clip to them and say hey you know i'm working on a film called wilmington on fire it's about the 1898 massacre all this good stuff here's the trailer here's a clip you should check it out it still kind of relates to what's going on today <laughs> and a lot of times they'll say yeah i want to write a story on this and so they'll write a story on propaganda and then they'll mention my film and they'll put the clip in there and they say, be on the lookout for Wilmington on fire at such and such date. Here is his info. Check it out. You know, so I would do certain things like that as well. Or I would go on like a lot of music blogs and share some of the, the soundtrack music and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And people would share it and download it and spread it around those things. And just some things just caught fire on its own. You know, yeah, pretty yeah. much the propaganda clip kind of just caught on fire on its own. 
you know, it was just pretty much luck. Yeah, yeah. No, it's important for me. I wanted to clarify because I know sometimes a lot of filmmakers, again, the the, the short story is, yeah, you know, I made this thing. um, I I did this short short clip. We put it out there and it just took off. And it's like there is this other step to it. It's like you have to know what right eyeballs to get in front of in order for it to take off. And so that's why I wanted to clarify. But I also, you know, switch gears a little bit. Being a documentarian filmmaker, um, a documentary filmmaker, especially on this particular topic, at what point do you find yourself um, not removing yourself from the filmmaker ego in terms of like, um, because, you know, the the film auteur, this dream lifestyle is like, you're this artist and and you have all the stuff that you're, you know, sharing out there that it becomes very egocentric to some extent but when it comes to the documentary filmmaker and a topic like this um at what point do you shift your focus where you realize sort of you're now sort of a conduit or a uh, you're in service of this story like a journalist or or somebody a historian that has to do their job to um you know share the the, the correct version so I, I, you know because like I said, I was just thinking like the marketing. It's kind of weird because marketing side of things is like there's a horrible tragedy or like like the the <laughs> produce brutality stuff that happens, and you're like, well, shoot, you know, this might be helpful. Like this film I'm working on is some a historical account that yeah. history repeating itself or things like this have happened in the past. Yeah. Like it's weird because you kind of have to balance it out. Like, am I completely yeah. being like this marketing yeah. guy that's taking advantage of something horrible, yeah. or is it of service? You know, and I don't. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to say. But yeah, I give I give you saying yeah, yeah, I give, yeah. And I had to kind of you know get on a fine line with that because I like I just didn't want to make it seem like I'm just trying to do this just to maybe get some money. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Because yeah. a lot of yeah, because, you know, like, because a lot of people do that. You know, they say, okay, here's an opportunity. I'm going to run with it so I can go ahead and sell a lot of DVDs and just attach myself. But no, nah, I think the reason why I pushed that that clip, that propaganda clip, because it was just very powerful. And I think that it was. people need yeah. to, they needed to hear it and see it right then. And I just, I, that's, that's why I didn't put no color grade to it. I said, I'm just putting it out. I'm just going to cut it up for that segment and just throw it out there. Because I think people really need to see it. And I didn't think. It was going to do that. I didn't really do it for that. But once people started hitting me up in media outlets, they wanted to kind of do a story, you know, do stories on it and kind of tie it into what's going on now in return of promoting what I'm doing. You know, I said, yeah, sure. You know, why not? You know, I have more than you know, I have more than that, you know, in the film. You know, that's really it's a really good film. And I really wanted people to to know that there's a really good film. It's a very interesting story. It's a very powerful story. You know, so that's how I kind of always looked at it, that, you know, I'm just trying to do a service to the actual descendants of the victims. Because that's why I did this. Why I did it for them, for the, the grandchildren and great grandchildren of the people who were actually affected by this thing. And they've all given me support. Um, they've had my back for the whole thing. And they've know they've they know how much I've sacrificed over the years um, to put this thing together. Um, pretty much use my own money, you know, from start to finish um, to, to do this. You yeah. Know? So yeah. I, yeah, you... but I got lucky. I tell you, I got to tell you a story. Um, it wasn't until like I say about last January, I didn't know how I was going to finish the film. The film, it was everything was done. I just needed money for post production mm-hmm. and like some and to pay for some archival um, permission right stuff. But um, 
and this goes back to why I always kept promoting even when I wasn't done. Um, a guy in the NBA actually gave me the rest of the money. He plays in the NBA. And he doesn't really like to me to tell who he is mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. But uh, he's an NBA player. And he's a fan of African. He's, he's a lover of African-American history. And he hit me up. His business partner hit me up like last year. And said, "Hey, you know, I'm the business. I'm the business uh, manager of such and such. He plays for the such and such." <laughs> See, I thought somebody was playing a joke. I'm like, I, I, "There's no way in hell someone in the NBA knows about my film, and I'm living in Laurenburg." But he actually saw. I think he heard about my film. He's he was actually following the film for like two years. I think he heard he saw it on some blog that he reads. And like I said, I was getting on anybody's thing, man. And see, this is why you do that because you never know who's looking. And so he said he was actually following the film for two years and he actually reached out to me because he wanted to buy a DVD. And I said that the film isn't done yet and I need like about, you know, 20,000 to get it done. And he said, well, that's all you need. You know, let's talk. And so, you know, I was talking with his business manager. I still didn't buy it. And then until he invited me to like one of the Charlotte Hornet games, they came to play the Hornets, the Charlotte Hornets and went to the game, got me a free ticket. I met him afterwards. And he said he really liked what I'm doing. He saw the footage and everything. He wants to help me out. Gave me the money, no strings attached. And he said, hey, here, here you go. And that's how I got the film made. And it was because of all the, the, the early marketing and promotion that I did. And this guy, he was, he, he was following the film for like two years. Hmm. He was actually following it because he saw me on some stuff that he actually reads. And he reached out. He wanted to buy a DVD. And I told him that it's not done because... Of I need a certain amount of money to finish it. And he said, hey, that's all you need. That's nothing. I like the film. I want to see it done. I want to see it out. Here you go. And that's how I got the film done. Amazing. Amazing. So yeah. the each screening has the, is there a common thread in terms of the reaction from the film? Um, yeah, every, yeah, everyone. Um, and that was the thing I was kind of most worried about. I was like, okay, this thing is a hit in Wilmington. Let's see how it does outside of Wilmington. And so the next screening I did, it was like the end of January, was in Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was a little if, if eerie about that because I didn't know how, how big my reach was in a bigger city. Charlotte's kind of a big city. And there's a lot of stuff going on on a Saturday night that, mm-hmm. you, can do, that you could be doing that instead of watching the documentary. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? But we packed that out, man. Um, the place hold about 230, 230 people. We packed about 240. It turned away about 50. Wow. You know, it was packed. Like sorry, I didn't. I didn't think it was. Uh, I didn't think it was going to happen because it was a, a. You know, it was a bigger city, but a lot of people heard about the film somehow. You know, so I was like, wow, I've really got some. And everyone, um, the reaction has has been the same um, across all races and everything. And that's another thing that has fascinated me. I thought that only probably African Americans would come and see the film, but whenever I do a screening, everyone's there: mm-hmm. white, black. Um, young, old, everyone. And that's what I really love to see, like everyone coming together and, and watching the film and getting something out of it as well. And another funny story was um, when we did the Charlotte screening, this one lady, she was actually running to the bathroom, right, <laughs> from the thing. And then I was like, okay, why is she running? And she comes back running again, you know, to come back. And she said that the movie is so good, I had to run to the bathroom so I wouldn't miss anything. I was like, wow. Oh. And then she ran back. I was like, I wish I could have recorded it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, but I didn't. But well, you have one of your artists draw like a little scenario of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Um, well, let me ask you. So, with this, th- when was the film released? It was back in uh, the 
the film festival was the early like earlier this year yeah this past november yeah that's right past november that's what you said so now that it's are you um what is your plan now for the distribution side of things and um have you been approached by other uh, a distribution company yet or anything like that Uh, no i haven't been approached by no distributor at all and i'm good with it um i plan on doing it i plan on doing it myself and what i'm doing is I'm waiting to release the DVD and digital download on November 10th. And November 10th is the actual anniversary of the massacre. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to release the DVD and and stuff, you know, that time. And hopefully in a few months, I can go ahead and start taking some pre-orders. So I'm just getting the DVD and stuff together now and getting my bundle stuff, like the art book and other things that I can kind of package and market it with it. I'm getting all that stuff together now as we speak. Mm-hmm. And um, so I plan on releasing it in November. Because you also have like this uh, a storefront, um, and it kind of reminds me of like Etsy or Shopify, like of the art, yeah. and it's really yeah. impressive. So, you, like you said, you have this. You're building your bundle. Um, yeah. I will introduce you to uh, Christopher Rufo, who was a past guest of mine on a podcast. They, he and his producing partner, filmmaking partner, uh, they um, made a documentary. Uh, yeah. About um, called Age of Champions about senior citizens competing in the Senior yeah. Olympics. Um, okay. But here's the deal that that film earned them over the course of two years one and a half million dollars. Oh wow! And there's a way they did that, and so everybody's like, "Well, yeah. how, wait." So if you're looking for that, I, it's I think it's episode number. Give me a second, guys. I, I'll I'll cut this so you don't have to hear it. But let me double check <laughs> what the episode number is. Yeah, I want to go back and listen to that one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, hold on this year. Let's see. Um, where's my boy, Christopher? Uh, it's like nine. I thought it was 80 something. Oh. oh, here it is. Oh, yeah. So I'm back. So I just found out what the episode was. It's episode number 77. So if you go to filmtrooper.com forward slash 77. Now, what they did, because I want you to meet those guys, because I think they yeah. would really. T- um, It'd be really great just meeting. They're up uh, one one guy's in Los Angeles, another guy's in Seattle. The the producing yeah. partners, but they did the same thing. They had this. It was like a short. I think it's like a fifty forty five minute long documentary, and yeah. that's all it was. They went through the film festival circuit. It didn't yeah. do anything. I mean, they won some awards, but nothing yeah. happened. So yeah. they discovered after a lot of trial and error that the biggest proponent of this um, film of theirs was these women in their in their 40s that worked at like hospice centers or elderly care yeah. places. And they were using yeah. the film as an inspiration for uh, the elderly people there. So yeah. they double down and start focusing on that marketplace. And there's this whole industry of like, you know, yeah. selling Walker, selling hearing, like all this stuff. And they went to a, a convention, did this short presentation and then sold like, pre-sold like $85,000 worth of like uh, DV packages because what it is is like it's it's a it's their movie but they decided that they would bundle it as like a inspirational health like package and so that's and the difference is these organizations um, they're used to spending a lot of money in terms of licensing for so this is a way they're able to keep uh, recurring revenue so an institution might buy their bundle uh, for you know any pr- a price from eighty five dollars to two hundred you know yeah. sixty nine dollars, yeah. so you would have this bundle, 
depending on where, where you are in the university yeah. structure. Yeah. And so you're following this. So you get it. So those probably people listening are like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So they weren't, because you probably heard me say this before, but, you know, we're not in the film business, really. I mean, in Hollywood's not in the film business. We're in the business yeah. of license exploitation. So if you control yeah. the license, you have yeah. a myriad of ways of exploiting it. And that's what you're doing with bundling and getting everything ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what they did is literally license it, license this yeah. education package to these institutions yeah. that were more than willing to spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars on their licensing yeah. package versus yeah. an individual, which is like my comfort zone is ninety nine cents for a rental and maybe ten bucks for yeah. the, you know that that's where that, so I think yeah. that you might have an opportunity as you build your package. Yeah, yeah, see, I'm I'm actually looking into that, into the whole, um, cause um, I've done some colleges already, mm-hmm. and a few college um folks have actually told me this. Say, hey, you should look into the the whole college system, you know, selling, you know, like you know the, the educational license for a couple hundred bucks or whatever, you know, you can charge for the educational license. I'm actually looking looking into some you know some stuff like that, especially in North Carolina. And also outside of it, but especially in North Carolina, because the the educational system here, they were supposed to actually pay, like say in North Carolina years ago, they were actually supposed to pay a production company five hundred grand to do what I did for like twenty, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So the state of North Carolina is actually, you know, looking for a film like this, you know. So you never know, I might could work something out with the state, you know, where you know we can license this thing and get it into the, all the schools for a certain amount. You know, so I'm just kind of I'm kind of, you know, weighing all my options with it, you know, and I'm definitely looking into that whole educational market, you know, heavy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, because yeah. it, it, it's it's a it's OK in the business world to like have a win win situation. Winning yeah. meaning like you win because you actually make money, which is not a horrible thing. But the, yeah. they win, too, because the content you create that you provide yeah. is educational and uh, exactly. informative in so many different ways. So it's okay to have this win-win thing. And um, exactly. and I think a lot yeah. of filmmakers need to get to that place where they have to look at exactly. creating these win-win situations because, yeah. um, you know, I was reading uh, the book by Stephen, Dr. Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Influential People or Successful yeah. People. And then this concept of like, if you put yourself in a, win-lose situation then you're trying to win by making sure the other person loses and that's sort of like the scammy thing if you are in a lose-win situation then you're too humbled and um like you know it's like opening a a sporting goods store and then giving everything away for free just because you're like (laughs) you know they win but you lose so there there has to be this place where it's healthy where it's both win-win so um it's definitely encouraging and in uh It'd be really fun to see where the story goes for you, you know, yeah. by the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, you know, I definitely want to keep you posted on it, man. And, you, <laughs> know, you know, if I could, you know, if I could make about, you know, close to a million dollars within a year, there'll be a great podcast to do if it happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't see, I mean, it's interesting because you, you hold yourself so humble, but yet you, you're sort of like the, you know, following the rapper's you know, business model, which is interesting because I, one of the last episodes that I did for the podcast, which was, was with a South Carolina, um, uh, filmmaker, yeah. Chris yeah. White, which is yeah. funny cause he's a white guy, but it was, no, he's like, cause, it, but he was interesting cause he, he was talking about the indie band, uh, you know, it's the same model, thing. same yeah. thing. 
and exactly. he, you know he's he's working his region because it's not only just South Carolina; it goes out to like yep. Virginia, Atlanta, and, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. So all that yep. kind of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, wanna... I kind of looked at and I kind of looked at it like like I said, like that that whole indie rock band, indie rapper thing, where you know when I do a screen, I, for example. When I did the the screening in January at the at the college UNCW Kenan Auditorium, we had 700 people in there, right? So I get to, I get to keep all that money. So that's fifteen dollars a ticket, 700 people. So I got that check plus I was selling merchandise, T-shirts, mm-hmm. you know, as well, twenty dollars a pop. So we sold a couple hundred of those shirts, <laughs> you know. You're a so rapper, yeah. I do, <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's what I'm saying, man. So. Like whenever I do a screening, I I make pretty pretty decent. You know, whenever I do a screening, I try to get a venue that's, you know, that can hold three to six hundred people. If I can get something that's a thousand, and another way I do when I do a screening, it's interesting. I do the same thing a rapper would do. Like I will find certain radio stations where I'm trying to target my demographic. I say I want to try to target the African American community. Some radio stations have gotten hip to this. Some haven't still. But I would do this. I would say okay. I got a screening coming up. I'll go to like the hip hop station in that area in that city and the whatever like they have one or two hip hop stations. I'll hit them up and say, hey, I got 10 tickets here. I want to give them out over the air for free. Here's the little blurb thing you can read for it. And usually they'll do it, you know, so it's like free advertising. I don't have to pay for the, the radio advertising. They'll just, you know, talk about the film and say, hey, we got two tickets, pair of tickets to give away. So it's a whole week. I'll give them like 10 tickets. And they'll just give out a pair a day for that whole week leading up to the film screening. And I usually try to get, yeah, I usually try to get about three stations. So see, the thing is, like, some radio stations are hip to it because a couple I went to, they'll say, nah, that's free advertising. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but majority, but majority aren't hip to it yet. So I do that all the time, man. I'll find, like, three stations. And, like, say, like, I have a venue that's, like, the whole 600 people, right? You know, you're going to have to give away some stuff. You know, and a lot of times people don't want to do that. So, okay, I have a venue that's 600. There's 600. I'll give away about 30 over the radio. So that's, I'll find three radio stations to give 10 tickets each to, right? And then also my other demographic, like I said, is African-Americans. So where, what other things that African-Americans do? They go to church. Hmm. So I'll, I'll find like the biggest, like the couple of churches, they have the biggest congregation in that city and I'll get in touch with the pastor somehow and tell him what I'm doing and I'll give the pastor a pair of tickets for him and his wife in exchange for just, you know, reading about, you know, the little blurb that I have to make an announcement in your Sunday church service for the next couple of weeks, you know, and that, that time, a lot of times that works as well. So just getting out there, you're making him happy, giving him some tickets. He's excited and they'll put in their church announcements over the, you know, the couple of weeks, or whatever, when they have a big church service. So those are some of the things, man. And then also just the standard flyers, you know, distributing flyers and putting posters, you know, stapling them on telephone posts and all that good stuff, you know, putting them up at different bars, restaurants, et cetera. So it's just a combination of all that stuff, plus social media as well and word of mouth. How often, like on a weekly basis, are you hustling, like like taking the time like to drive out to a church to to make that phone call to to make that email? So like what have you found yourself doing in the course of like a year, two years? Almost every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's nonstop, man. You know, but the thing is, it doesn't feel like work because it's actually fun. You Mm -hmm. know, I actually enjoy doing it, you know, so that's why, you know, it doesn't. 
it's a lot of work, but it doesn't feel like work. You know, it's not stressful or anything. And the time goes by just like that. It goes by real quick. And before you know it, it's already nighttime or it's the next day already. You know, so it doesn't it it doesn't really feel like a lot of work. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I enjoy doing it. Yeah. I'm always wondering if um, I want to circle back to the film because I know like yeah. we, we talk about, you know, a little bit of what the film was, all, all the different hustle and the marketing strategies that you've been able to do to to yeah. get these successful live you know showings and screenings yeah. and you're doing you know you're following the model of a rap, um, rap artist you're having t-shirts yeah. you know artwork things like that being sold at the venues you know so you're you're collecting as much you know revenue as possible in terms of yeah. ticket receipts and you know give away a little bit but hope to you know whatever you give away the return investment on that should be a higher percentage yeah. than if you didn't yeah what is because of the seriousness of the subject matter of this of uh, Wilmington on fire? Is there like a call? Is there a call to action at the end of the film? Is there something that makes yeah. people go? Because I don't. I mean, I, again, I don't know the whole story yet. I haven't seen the film. Yeah. But it's yeah. one of those things like I can imagine sitting through. Um, you know, what do we? You know, what are we supposed to take away from this this historical yeah. event? And then is there like a call to do you offer that kind of call to action at the end? Yeah, it's pretty much is it's pretty much a call to action of, you know, it's pretty much the film is pretty much about, all right, we're in this situation because of this event. So we need to do something not only um as people in North Carolina, but just the the, the United States of America because the thing is when you watch this film you learn that this is something that the United States just let happen and they never corrected it. And the people that were behind the massacre, not only them, but the people that were actually doing the killing. Cause see the people behind the massacre, they didn't really, they weren't out there with the guns shooting people. They just kind of orchestrated it. Mm-hmm. But the people that were actually doing the murdering, they were actually U S troops, <laughs> you know? So it's like in the United States did nothing about it. And we've never corrected it. We've never addressed the issue, not only of the massacre, but thousands of massacres that have happened. And also just race relations in general in America. We've never dealt with it on a serious level. And that's what the film is mainly about. It's just not for Wilmington, but just race relations as a whole throughout America. And that's what really people, when people watch it, it doesn't matter where they're at, whether it's Charlotte, Atlanta, New York they all get something out of it. like, hold on, these things that I just saw, this stuff is going on in my city. Some, the stuff is very similar, the way they're trying to change up the laws and, you know, and change up things to hinder a certain group of people. These things are still going on. So a lot of people, they kind of see, when they see the film, they kind of get something out of it because they see what's going on in their city or their community. They see the exact same thing when, you know, what happened in 1898 somewhat. Is there a way to, um, I guess, take it to the next step? And like, and I know the White House has something like if you get 20,000 signatures or something, they have to make an official response or something like that. Yeah. Is there a way to tie that in, um, you know, to go to the White House, you know, directly to or indirectly? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's like one of those things <laughs> to, to level up to say, yeah. like, this is an event that happened, but we can see where it goes from this. Um because I can see like somebody watching a film or then having like an easy sort of uh, link to click to 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 sign the petition to at least have whatever needs to be addressed, 
you know, yeah. addressed. I don't know if like if that's like the next level up to be like, yeah. you know, dear Mr. President, here it is, you know, before you yeah. like his term's over. You yeah. sometimes you never know. It's like, you know, I'll you look never... into this. Let me let me make a yeah. statement on that, you know. Yeah, well, I'm working on I'm working on some things. Um, you know, <laughs> You're like, I'm one guy, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, but nah, but nah, you bring up a good point. Um you know, we're working on it, um, you know, working on several things, actually, uh, you know, not only a petition to help push because I'm actually going to do a sequel to Wilmington on Fire. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be like Wilmington on Fire, too. I don't have like a subtitle yet, but there's still more to the story that I didn't put in the first one. And a lot of that stuff is what you're talking about now. Like, what's the next step? And also about how they were supposed to do certain things back in like 2006 2008 that they never did and see those are one of the things they were they were supposed to do because they created this big um 1898 race ride commission right Mm -hmm. back in i say early 2000s and they hired a a historian to do actual official state report on the 1898 massacre and we have the lady in my film actually who Mm -hmm. did the report for the state and they came to the conclusion that you know we need to do something to correct this and they came up with a series of bills and one was like, you know, actual compensation to the actual direct descendants, like some of the people that we have in the film who actually prove losses that their ancestors, you know, had during the massacre. One was to offer certain, you know, educational programs to African-Americans in the city, uh, find a production company that could do a documentary about 1898, give them 500 grand to do it. Um, just all types of stuff. Put this stuff in the school curriculum throughout North Carolina. It was a whole series of bills. None of the stuff got passed. Mm. You know, none none of it got passed and just went away. And it was like back in 2008. And so those are the things I'm kind of going to, and a lot of people don't even know about it when I bring it up in a Q&A session. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so those are the kind of things we're going to talk about in the second one. And also what happened to people after the massacre, like a lot of them just left Wilmington, but where did they go? And a lot of them went to, you know, other states, other cities, but a lot of them went to a place called Whitesboro, New Jersey, in, um, in New Jersey. And it's a place in Cape May County. And the guy who started the town, he was a, a black congressman in North Carolina back then. But when they did the massacre and set up the whole Jim Crow era, kind of restricting black people voting rights, he didn't get reelected again. So he pretty much said, you know what, African-Americans, we can't do anything anymore in North Carolina. Let's move north. And he got together with some other investors and they bought some land in New Jersey. And he created a town named after himself called Whitesboro. Hmm. And a lot of people up there still know that history, that connection with 1898 and with Wilmington. A lot of them still come down to Wilmington, you know, in the summer, and they still have that connection with their family. And they all know about that whole history and why they're living there today. You know, so we're going to kind of capture those stories and and show, you know, what's going on in Whitesboro today and that whole connection with Wilmington as well. Yeah. Maybe they'll give you the half the million dollars to do that film. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've already done the proof of concept for them. You're like, exactly. well, hey, yeah, you know, <laughs> it'll, ne- it'll never happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never, you, you can't say, I, I, yeah. you know, everything you've been doing, you're like, ah, you know, I'm just hoping 30 people, 600 people, I'll never yeah, happen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to you, like, you'll have, <laughs> that was my dog. Hold on. no, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, all right, go ahead. Oh, that's it. I mean, like, anything is possible, I think, for you and and, and your journey to to share this story, which is, I'm excited to see the film. Like I said, it's not just, the subject matter, too, is like, I didn't know about this uh, part of history in America. And then as well as um, 
just the packaging, just the artwork, the the music, everything the, the everything you put together, the clips I've seen is top notch, and it's like wow. And um, I can totally see like it. It'd be interesting to see what distribution companies because that doesn't have to be the end all be all. So it's it's fine because I don't even think they knew what to do with it. Most of them like it doesn't yeah. fit into a box. They know how, how to deal. Um, but I'm excited for you to to meet Christopher Rufo. Uh, I'll make that introduction. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely want to talk to him and you know and pick his brain a little bit and, and vice versa. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, um, we can as we wrap it up here. I, I want to make sure I didn't. Uh, miss anything was there anything else um a lot of great tips by the way just of like how you were dealing with like promoting a film when you didn't have the film finished you know the materials yeah. you use the hustle you use the the promotional tactics um i, I think would be very helpful for other filmmakers to understand uh that yeah. it's not just like making something put it out there and fingers crossed exactly. and, yeah yeah so but i want to make sure i i didn't miss something or if well you want i to know share. like with, with screenings for, for example like I know a lot of people always hit me up and ask, like, why I don't do a lot of film festivals. Um, I don't know. Film festivals, they're just not really my thing like that. Um, I'll do, like, one or two, like I did with Kukaloris. <laughs> and um, that's pretty much it. Because I feel like all the submission fees, I'll do them. I'll submit to a festival here and there. You know, if I see something on, you know, without a box or film freeway that catches my I'll submit. But I'm like this. Over a period of time, I probably will spend, like, five or $600. I can use that to rent a venue and just, you know, rent like, you know, a venue for like, you know, it has like 500 seats and I can rent it for like 600 or maybe a thousand dollars that I spent on submission fees and I can charge $10 a ticket and make a good, you know, five or six or eight grand, you know, yeah, off of my, you know, so that's how I look at it, you know, and so I think a lot of filmmakers should really do that, like build it, build your audience. Cause I'm, I'm constantly trying to build it, build my audience, keep growing and growing, and really build your audience. Whenever you do a screening or anything, have your little email sign up sheet, always to get people's emails, so you can have a, a nice, you know, email blast system going mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. You know, just break it down by you know region or city or state or whatever you want to do it. Um, also, this other guy I'm trying to get on, I'm on his waiting list right now. Just, this guy, he's a singer. He's a singer slash producer. His name's Ryan Leslie. And he's created this this great app, man. It's called the Superphone. And I've been looking into it, and I think it could really help filmmakers. And I've seen some more information offline. But it's a way where you can market your artistry, but it's not email, email per se. It's like through cell phone. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of people, you know, we, we check email, but we also check text messages as well. Mostly. Oh, yeah. So this whole thing is connecting with people you know, through the cell phone, through texting. And his app, it kind of shows, like, who supports him, who actually bought his album, you know, when they bought it, you know, how many albums have they actually bought, how many singles have they bought, how many tickets they went to. It breaks all that down. So you kind of know who your actual real supporters are, and you can kind of hit them directly. And I've been following for a few years. I had a chance to get on it, to get it, to use it. But I don't know. I waited too long, and then I got knocked off, and now it's a big wait. So I'm like, oh man, I should have signed up when I had the chance. So, <laughs> but whenever I get off the waiting list, I'm definitely getting on. But it's called on um, the super phone, and it's I yeah. think it's a real good tool that a lot of filmmakers, you know, can use to really connect with their customers, you know, on a more intimate level. Oh yeah, there's a. I know the real estate market, realtors use that a lot. Where there's different technology with a cell phone, where they'll ping you 
when the latest deal comes up or something like they rather communicate with you via a texting than other other means um that'd be fun and fun to know these tools there's another tip i don't know if um if you thought about it but you could as you do these screenings to find out who the if it's in, if it's in a region outside of where your hometown is um invite some of the program directors from the surrounding festivals it's one of those right. things like like you know like well here's a free ticket for you like yeah. you know it's one of the, it's um and then you have the in with um how do you pronounce the, your local film festival again the the big one the oh cucoloris yeah. This is my bad English. My bad. <laughs> Kukaluras. <laughs> yeah, because well, yeah. you've already had the connection with them. They might know other programming directors. Oh, and, they do. So yeah. that yeah. I'm just saying that's one of the, like if you're already you know getting church members, you're getting like the radios play and yeah. other free tickets. Like that's just like one more influencer that could be like, all right, here's a program director. They might come and see. Look at this event that's going on. I got to have this in my festival. And that's why you don't even have to pay. You know, like they come to you because they want it, as opposed to you pushing it onto them. But so. I still, I still, I still look at it, man. Like, okay, if I do that, and then they have like a five or six hundred or eight hundred venue, and they pack it out and tend a ticket, I'm like, man, I could have just made eight thousand dollars, probably. No, right, right. <laughs> but you know, it's a win-win. You know, to me, it still kind of you know opens you up to another market as well. Yeah. Um, of the audience, so it's still a win-win, regardless. Yeah. You're true. I guess it's you know you can pick and choose. I mean, there's so many different yeah. festivals. Um, there's uh, so it's it's a matter to like what works best for you. I only saw it as most people are using independents are using the film festival as sort of their theatrical screening promotional yeah. tour. You know, so they yeah. they use it for that. And but then again, it might just get you know it, you might do one or two, and you realize this is not as effective as going directly to the audience. It's, it's like yeah. kind of like you're being a, a rap artist. Where if yeah. you're solo, if you're the headlining act, people come yeah. to see you as opposed to yeah. I'm part of this iHeart Music Festival. You know, it's like yeah. Now, I kind of like it that way. I kind of like it that way, man. I, I actually like, like I said, there's no knock against film festivals. I, I you know I like them. You know they're cool. You know, but I just don't. I don't know. I kind of like doing my own thing. Yeah, you know, I like yeah. really engaging with people and and doing the interviews and reaching out and being on the street handing out flyers um another thing i i use as well sometimes like digital digital billboards mm -hmm. um they're kind of cheap nowadays like you know back in the day you had to get the actual print billboard and mm -hmm. it cost you a whole bunch of money now you can get a digital billboard man for like 20 to 50 bucks a day wow you know the ones that and just it's like that yeah, I, just you were driving by second. yeah they changed yeah 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 and i do that sometimes you know i'll get it for like maybe a couple of days out the week you know, right before the lead up to, you know, and usually it's on a busy, you know, intersection, you know, where people are there. So those are some of the things, man, just look into a lot of times some of this stuff that's out there that we think is expensive isn't, you know, and <laughs> and you just got to be willing to spend some of that money. You yeah. Know, just say, OK, it's, it's 50 or 80 bucks. All I got to do is just sell eight tickets and I get that money back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so that's yeah. how I kind of look at a lot of things. Like I break down my stuff. Like, okay, I spent eighty dollars to get this digital billboard. I got to sell eight tickets for that. I spent two hundred dollars on promotional materials and posters and flyers. I got to sell a certain amount of tickets to get that back. You know, that's how I kind of look at it. You know, whenever I do my screenings. Yeah, yeah, for sure, totally. That's amazing. I'm excited. I am. You know, so people who want to see this film, they can only see it right now via the live. Um, uh, theatrical um, venues, right? That you put on, or is it available? Yeah, 
Um, it's not it's not available yet, but what I'm going to start doing is um, licensing out the film. Um, I've seen a lot of people do that. Like, say, like where you're at, someone in Oregon. Say, if someone in Oregon sees this podcast, like, hey, I want to screen this here, and so they'll hit me up, and I'll give them a certain fee. You know, they play the screening license, and I'll see them a screener, and they can just do their own, you know, screening. So okay. I'm gonna start doing because I want to kind of. The reason why I was hesitant about doing it at first because I'm just real iffy of bootlegging and pirating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I've seen it happen to a lot of people where you know they're sending out screeners and people setting up screenings, and now the film is everywhere. It's online, oh, happens. foreign. And, yeah. But I'm looking like okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So I'm just going to start because I want to get my reach a little bit more. And I've hit, have people all the time hit me up in Minnesota, Texas, everywhere, um, California that want to do a screening. So I'm going to start. I'm working on a contract now in a, you know, a, a method of, you know, start sending out screeners and, you know, accepting screening license and, you know, fees and stuff like that. So if anyone out there that's interested in maybe showing the film in their city or town, just hit me up. Speller Street Films at gmail.com and we can work something out yeah and i make sure i have all the the information in the show notes when you go to this episode yeah. so um it i'm it's an absolute pleasure to meet you you know and to see your project Amen. and um i'm looking forward to finally seeing it myself and yeah. um you know i'll look into i'll email i'll email you i'll email you a private link you know, oh. we get off the, the thing. And no, I'll, I want to buy a package. I'll private private link, but I'll, I definitely I love the yeah. artwork. So I'll probably buy your yeah. art book too. So, <laughs> uh, cool. but yeah, like I said, man, I, I'm a fan of, of of your podcast. I've learned a lot of things, you know, listening to your podcast, and that's why I wanted to reach out to you. Because, like I said, I'm a fan, a huge fan, and I've learned a lot. And I'm going to continue to listen as well. And I tell people about you all the time. You know, it's like yo, listen to this guy's podcast. They have a lot of good things. You learn a lot. So thank you. I don't know anything other than I just like to ask the questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know what, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is, you you have a lot of people who who have you know some good ideas, and mm-hmm. also you have some good things as well. So you know, I try to take you know a little bit from everyone. You know, and and I think a lot of filmmakers need to really embrace the internet. You know, because. 20 years ago, we wouldn't even been able to do something like this. You know, oh, yeah. in Laurenburg, I'm like in nowhere land in Laurenburg, you know, and you were like in Oregon. Right. So, you know, filmmakers really need to embrace the internet a lot because that's how I made my connections with the NBA guy, you know, because of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so. Unbelievable. And the work you put into it. So I, I'm, yeah. it's just amazing. And I'll make sure everybody gets hold of you again. So what's the last, the easiest way to get hold of you? Um, say that again. Um, Speller Street Films at gmail.com. Speller Street Films at gmail.com. Very yeah. cool. All right, Christopher. I, I'm excited to hear. This is only part one because I know when, yeah. when yeah. November uh, comes around and the event and all this time you have building up the, the bundles and the packages and all the other things you'll be doing, it'll be really, really fascinating to see uh, the turn events yeah. once it goes, um, goes bigger for the event um, in a couple months. Definitely. Yeah, we definitely got to do a part two. Yeah, definitely. You're always welcome to come back. (laughs) Cool. Cool. That concludes my interview with documentary filmmaker Christopher Everett on his new film, Wilmington on Fire. And if you like this episode, think about leaving a ratings and review over at iTunes. Just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes and any type of rating review would be greatly, greatly appreciated to keep this podcast going and getting it out there to more people. But wait, there's more. 
Don't go away empty-handed because if you're stuck trying to make your film right now, then I invite you to get a free gift over at freegearguide.com. This is an equipment list of everything that I use to make a feature film with no crew. Again, that's at freegearguide.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the podcast, and I'll see you next time. Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent.